Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here with this week's Democracy Sausage from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and PolicyForum.net. As we record this, a new survey of Australian attitudes to the COVID crisis and particularly the government response has found voters are overwhelmingly satisfied with all the extra spending, social distancing rules, travel bans, etc., The National Australia Bank survey found fewer than 1 in 10, or just 9% of those polled, worried that the government response was inadequate or fell short of what was required. In March, as public fear threatened to add Dem panic to pandemic, that number was twice as high at 20%. And on any comparison, it seems the high level of voter confidence is pretty well justified, even if those surveyed might take a different view once the return of full early childhood education fees hits home. Australia's death toll has been stationary at 102 for over a month now, and many states have achieved weeks with not one new case being recorded and thus having no active cases. Then look at our closest cultural and strategic allies, the US and the UK. America has surpassed 2.1 million infections and is soaring towards 120,000 deaths, with some experts saying a toll north of 150,000 is inevitable. Britain's numbers are lower but are worse on a per capita basis. You might expect Donald Trump to make more of this, but he doesn't understand per capita. Per capita compared to what, he asked recently in a press conference, apparently in all seriousness. Someone who does understand numbers is my regular partner on Democracy Sausage, political scientist and lecturer at the School of Politics and International Relations, Dr Maria Teflaga. How are you there, Maria? Very well, and numerate today as well, so welcome to everyone. That's good. Always handy for a political scientist, I think. Yes, it does help. And another numbers expert, indeed, is one of Australia's foremost public economists and a gifted debunker of what you might call economic cant, is Dr Richard Dennis, who is Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, not to be confused with the Australian Studies Institute, where I work. He's also an author and he's a former Associate Professor at ANU. Welcome, Richard. Uh, Good day, and um, happy to say I'm... More numerous than Donald. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's safe to say that. In fact, I think you could uh, troll through most of the uh, the early childhood facilities I was just making reference to and find higher levels of numeracy. <laughs> now, look, there's many things to discuss, as there always are in the political economy. So let's start with that childcare decision, Richard. What's behind it as you see it? 
Oh, look, you know, uh, politics is behind everything in Australia. Um, uh, the, the, you know, the Morrison government did a very good job at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, abandoning, you know, years, decades of, of saying that the, the number one variable that mattered in Australia was uh, the size of the budget deficit and the amount of public debt we had. Uh, they abandoned that uh you know, un, under under pressure from pretty much every economist in the country. Uh, but unfortunately, um, uh, it seems that the government is no longer listening to clear economic advice, uh, and that's clear economic advice that uh, the recession is far from over, that stimulus spending is still very much required, uh, and that we need to do everything we can to help anyone who can get back into the workforce. So I think um, uh, whether we're looking at it in terms of short-term stimulus or whether we're talking about it in terms of boosting the long-run participation rate, uh, it's hard to see any economic argument for uh, for ending free childcare for for a lot of Australian parents. And, um, you know, wh why are they doing that? Uh, well, presumably because they they want to get Australians back to the debate uh, about cutting spending and reducing the debt. So it's kind of it's a, it's an early form of austerity, uh, the kind of austerity that, um, in a sense, had been uh, eschewed uh, out of this uh, public debate uh, over a period of time. I mean, we haven't really seen any talk of that. Uh, the the government's even fairly uh, fairly clearly indicated that it doesn't see budget repair as a process of cutting spending so much as a process of a, of growing the economy but but here already uh, there's a there's a kind of a fiscal argument that's been put that if it were to leave this assistance in place it would cost the budget some 15 billion dollars a year and so even before other assistance has been pulled back or, or, or other spending, uh, even before we've got through the worst of the crisis, really, necessarily, we don't know, um, we've got this this um, childcare uh, assistance in, in both the um, the free childcare uh, fees and also the, the JobKeeper subsidy, which was meant to uh, be the same as JobKeeper in all other sectors of the economy and continue on at least till September. So it, it does feel like there's an ideological aspect to this uh, and, and the fiscal argument is coming out. Oh, look, there's no doubt about that. I, I mean, let's be clear, for, for families with uh, young kids in childcare, um, uh, giving them free childcare is giving them a significant boost in their disposable income. What, what are they doing with that money? They're, they're, they're spending it. Uh, now that we reintroduce those fees, what's going to happen? Well, their disposable income is going to fall uh, and their capacity to spend on other things in the economy is going to fall. So it's, it's clearly the, the sort of the first, uh, the first austerity measure that's been introduced. And uh, as a citizen and as an economist, I, I, I can only feel, oh, I don't know, I, I can't say surprised, disappointed that um, look, look where we've landed, the first cuts on, on a policy that disproportionately helps women. Um, there's no doubt that participation rates in Australia of women in the workforce in their, uh, in their early 30s are, are much lower uh, than a lot of countries, particularly the Northern European countries that do such a good job of providing high quality and affordable childcare to their citizens. Uh, so yeah, whether we're thinking about stimulus in the short term, um, and and that is just you know free childcare is a good way to pump some money into the economy, uh, or whether we're thinking about the long term, as Scott Morrison always wants us to do. Uh, if we're thinking about the long term, um, then. 
getting more women to the labor force is going to be a, a, a very good uh, a good thing for the long run uh, level of economic growth. It's a really interesting idea, isn't it, Maria? The the idea that in fact they could they could have gone absolutely distinctly in the opposite direction and left childcare assistance as the last plank of assistance in the economy that you know you can make such a strong argument for um for its uh, role in in providing you know for being a sort of a wealth and economic growth generator by increasing female participation in the workforce and and if uh, if even if it does cost 15 billion dollars a year that's peanuts to what they're spending at the moment uh, so you, you wonder whether there isn't just an ideological blind spot here uh, that that uh, you know the predominantly blokey and predominantly post uh, child care aged ministers and and bureaucrats just uh, haven't really sort of thought this through. I think that there is definitely a preference marker, I suppose, uh, in relation to the, the, the childcare decision. I mean, yes, everyone does talk about how it does cost or it would cost uh, almost $15 billion um, a year to have uh, free childcare for everyone, but we don't necessarily talk about the um, egregious amount of money that we spend on primary school education. And I guess that's sort of the point is that the way we sort of discuss climate, uh, sorry, climate change, the way we discuss childcare in this country um, is very much structured around economic arguments um, only. So, so it doesn't necessarily – we don't really necessarily think about it sort of beyond um, what it might do to sort of boost uh, economic growth. And we don't really think about it in a sophisticated way in terms of the way it sort of flows on through um, women's lives in particular as they do most of the care functions in our society um, to this to this day, I think that uh, that I've forgotten his name, but the the LNP senator who um, in the Jared chamber, Rennick, yes, Jared Rennick, thank you, who basically sort of said in the chamber that um, having keeping uh, parents, which I I don't think he meant himself, and I don't think he meant people like him um, at home <laughs> would be great um, because it would reduce congestion. Um, and, you know, and that it would be better for children. And I think, I think in that, uh, we have a hint at the sort of preferences for the types of, um, sort of, I guess, idealized family lives that many people in the coalition, um, kind of still sort of hold to. But the reality is, is that most, uh, families require two incomes now, um, to, to survive. And, um, it sort of does beg a belief that a, a policy that is a real enabler to, to women in particular, but to families as well, takes so much time to administer, is complex, uh, and is, um, is sort of quite punitive to women's participation. Like it, it, Part of it is how it relates to other sort of aspects of the welfare and transfer and tax systems, but it's clearly just not a priority because if it was, it wouldn't be such a mess. Oh, look, it's clearly not a priority. I mean, you know, we've got the front page of the government, uh, front page of the papers today with the Prime Minister saying he wants to spend $70 billion uh, on some construction projects which are going to create 66,000 jobs. Well, 
per dollar spent, construction creates very few jobs. That's that's a fact. It's not a left-wing conspiracy. There's this top-secret organization called the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And from the ABS data, we can see that when we spend money on things like health and education, we create far more jobs per million dollars spent than when we spend money on something like construction. But you know, prime ministers love to put on hard hats and put on high vis and, you know, they create a great construction backdrop for their jobs announcements. But the vast majority of Australians don't wear hard hats to work. The vast majority of Australians don't wear high vis to work. And we have this incredibly simplistic and I'd say gendered uh, approach to what a real job is in Australia. And governments, successive governments, state and federal, but uh, this particular federal government seems determined to have a a construction-led recovery when we've got hundreds of thousands of people who've just lost their jobs in tourism, in entertainment, in retail, uh, in restaurants and cafes. The idea that those people are going to get themselves a job working on a construction site anytime soon is simply absurd. Um, It takes years to train up a skilled construction workforce. I'm not saying we shouldn't spend some money on construction, by the way. I'm saying it is demonstrably wrong for anyone to think that if we spend enough money on construction, we're going to create the kind of jobs in the kind of towns that need hundreds of thousands of people re-employed uh, in the coming months and, and even years. So, yeah. So I was just going to say, so why do you think governments do it? I mean, governments have access to the, that ABS data that shows, uh, you know, the, uh, the comparisons between uh, money spent in construction and money spent in education, early childhood education, other forms of education, and, and, and presumably in health and other uh, service areas as well. So why is it that governments uh, sort of cleave to this idea that it has to be infrastructure projects? Is it, uh, as you say, a, you know, the kind of the trope of um, you know a real job, and that's a, a fairly blokey construct that's somewhat outdated, and they just won't take in the new evidence? Is it that plus perhaps that there's a physical asset at the end of it and in some people's minds that's the only investment that actually counts, you know, the one you can see, the one you can drive over, the tunnel you can go through or the sports stadium you can sit at? Uh, Look, I actually think it's just a powerful combination of of public politics and private politics. Um, Publicly, the the public kind of have the idea in their head that building roads and building bridges is the best way to create jobs because that's what powerful people have told them for decades. And and let's be clear, back in the 1930s, the last time we had a depression, um, 70% of the workforce was male, building roads was incredibly labour-intensive. So, yeah, back in the 1930s, building the Great Ocean Road, building all sorts of roads was a great way to create jobs. But here we are in 2010 where the vast majority of Australians don't work in construction, they don't work in mining, uh, they don't work in in the blokey jobs that look good on television, but the public imagination still kind of uh, still still thinks it does. So, so from a public perception point of view, there's... It's no accident that politicians love to slip on a hard hat and stand on a building site. But privately, uh, you know, this is this is just delivering huge amounts of public money to uh, to to particular small number of very large companies to spend uh, to build a small number of projects that will be very profitable over time. You know, toll roads, toll bridges, those sorts of things. So, you know, why why does the New South Wales government 
think that it's a good idea to knock down a stadium and build a new one, but that same government says it can't afford to invest more money in uh, domestic violence shelters. I don't know. (laughs) Why does the federal government think it can afford to spend $500 million uh, fixing up the the, the war memorial? Half a billion dollars to expand a war memorial. Or or $70 billion today uh, on on new construction projects, but then, then tells people we can't afford and it would be economically irresponsible to have free childcare. Look, the fact is politicians get into power to make the decisions that they think are right. And, you know, there's no doubt this government likes to spend money uh, on subsidising fossil fuels. It doesn't like to spend money on subsidising renewable energy. It likes to spend money on big infrastructure projects. It doesn't like to spend money on small housing projects. It's got nothing to do with economics. The data is quite clear. I mean, if we look at sort of what the government has sort of chosen to spend money on, on which sectors of the economy it's chosen to spend money on, there is a a pattern that is beginning um, to emerge and it's a point that has been made many times now, you know, that – these are industries that are disproportionately ones where women are employed and they also tend to be ones that aren't, I guess, ne- necessarily the natural constituency of, of the coalition, such as the uh, arts and entertainment industry or, or the university um, sector. What is actually kind of difficult to determine over the long term is what is actually the government's sort of roadmap out of this Um over the long term, like we know that the government is currently, I guess, in a planning stage and um, a lot of what is sort of being released now is sort of, I guess, political kind of management sort of stuff like uh, that the, the the egregious job builder program, which is probably just a sort of marketing kind of um, push. Um, and, and it's interesting to kind of contrast I guess what people in the executive are trying to say, they're basically trying to create space for themselves to have options compared to what sort of backbench members are sort of saying. And what backbench members are saying are basically they're worried about the levels of debt increasing and uh, they're sort of floating slightly mad ideas about, well, potentially increasing the payment of New Start in exchange for going on to the cashless welfare card, which, you know, is is actually really quite bonkers and perhaps the only thing, the kind of thing that someone who's never been on welfare or been poor would, would ever sort of potentially suggest, given that the whole rationale behind the cashless welfare card is to actually help people manage money who are really struggling to manage money, not to necessarily put everyone on welfare into a situation where they are literally being policed and reducing their individual agency. Yes, absolutely. Now, Maria, I don't want to... Uh you know, beat up on the government unnecessarily or talk our own book as, uh, as people employed in the education sector. But um, going to the, the point that both you and Richard are, are making here, which is uh, about the role of ideology in a lot of these decisions, I mean, it does, it, it, it does feel like there's some fairly strong ideology in the decision initially not to include the university sector in the major uh, protection uh, programs that they've run for this COVID crisis. And then, so at the top end of, of the education cycle, the, the university sector, and at the bottom end of the education cycle, the even more important early childhood education sector is having that uh, assistance withdrawn rather early. Yet we still see quite substantial subsidisation of um, 
particularly the private school sector in this country. So there's a lot of ideology here, isn't there? Oh, look, I don't think there's ideology at all, Mark. Um, I think it's just interests. Uh, <laughs> ideology refers to – no, it's a big difference. Uh, ideology refers to a consistent set of ideas. Uh, and ideology shouldn't be a dirty word. People should have consistency in their sets of ideas. So so let's break that down. As I said before, you know, the government loves to subsidise some forms of energy, brackets fossil fuel. Uh, they don't like to subsidise other forms of energy, such as renewables. They love to subsidise some forms of education, like private schools. They don't like to subsidise other forms of education, like public universities. They made JobKeeper available, by the way, to the privately owned universities. Um, uh, Gladys Berejiklian, often criticised for being sort of a zealot when it comes to privatisation, literally spend a billion dollars of taxpayers' money to buy a football stadium so she could knock it down and build a new one. There is no ideology at play here whatsoever. <laughs> There's just interests. There are just preferences. There are just desires. And and I actually think we, we, we flatter people unfairly when we call them ideologues. Again, it's hard to be an ideologue. It's hard to be consistent. It's hard to keep standing up for one side of the argument. It's actually very easy just to always give money to your friends and to always hold it back from your opponents. So, uh, yeah, there's some clear patterns here. But they're not patterns around the size of government. They're not patterns around the role of regulation. They're just patterns of uh, who are the preferred groups that typically get cash uh, and who are the preferred groups that don't. I don't know if I would quite uh, agree with that. I mean, I agree with you that uh, interests are, are profound and that preferences are the the, the driving force behind um, decision-making, though I do think that um, – some of the sort of core underlying assumptions around um, what drives those preferences are in the sort of are kind of ideological. I, I grant you that in some ways many of these processes are effectively path dependent. You know, the party system was formed uh, at the turn of the century where the great conflict was between uh, workers under the sort of socialist or socialist light banner and basically the sort of disorganized elements of capital, so landowners and, and manufacturers who combine basically to to oppose um, labor. Um, and we can kind of, I mean, like there was an excellent paper published by Sean Ratcliffe in the Australian Journal of Political Science two or three years ago that actually did show that um, it really did, does matter which party you elect because um, there is a difference of, of 2 to 3% in the amount given to capital or labor under each um, political party. And you might think, oh, well, it's just 2, two to 3%, but that's actually billions of dollars. That's an enormous amount of um, money. I mean, um, I guess to extend your point, Richard, about it's not always about ideology. Well, that's true in the sense that on the question of, um, you know, perhaps why uh, the coalition is tone deaf on the needs of women during this recession, particularly as they are the ones facing the highest losses of jobs and hours of work. Like if we actually look at who is at the top of the um, of the actual cabinet, who is in the cabinet room, um, there aren't very many women. Um, and more importantly, they're not in the right portfolios. You know, we've got the Environment Minister, Defence and Foreign Affairs, um, you know, only um, Anne Rustin is the only minister responsible for families and social services, but none, no women are involved really in the um, 
the core economic portfolios that sit at the heart of government, that kitchen cabinet surrounding Scott Morrison that makes these kinds of decisions. And and this was this was before the pandemic as well, if you recall, there was that uh, piece in the Australian at the very end of 2019, sort of like mapping out um, Scott Morrison's inner circle and and it was bereft of um, women. And so it doesn't surprise me that uh, given the selection of politicians is becoming ever narrower, the, you know, their, their life experience is increasingly sort of structured around uh, working for industry advocacy and union groups. This is across both sides and effectively working as political staff and functionaries. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that there is a sort of disconnect with the realities of how people live in the suburbs. Oh, look, I, I'm not saying for a minute it's not gendered. It clearly is. But I'm sticking to my guns. I don't think it's ideological. Sure, liberals might give more money to capital than Labor, but which capital do they give it to? As I said before, they, they love to subsidise fossil fuels. They don't like to subsidise renewables. Uh, renewables are owned by capitalists. But, you know, they have their preferred capitalists uh, and clearly they have their preferred employees as well. That's why we've got, you know, so much talk about uh, uh, building and construction and, and so little talk uh, about uh, you know, using health and education and the service sector to boost the economy. So, oh, no, they've, they've clearly got interests. I just don't accept that they conform to any... Uh, certainly any economist's notion of, of ideology. They, they they love to subsidise their friends. They 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 love to regulate their oh, enemies. It's just They're a post-material free. divide. Free market. It's just a post-material, like so post-materialism, for those of you who don't know, is basically politics that isn't about dollars and cents. So the environment, gender issues, race, these are all post-material politics, consumer protection. Um, and if you know, if you look at the evolution of post-materialist politics across the Western world, you do sort of see a, a left-right uh, cleavage, which is just sitting on top of the classic identity politics marker, which is class. Um, so anyway, I think this has become a bit of an obtuse uh, point. I think we're actually talking past each other. I was really enjoying it, actually. But look, let's take a quick break and come back and continue this discussion because there's a bit to talk about in terms of uh, um, in terms of ideology and uh, and and interest serving and so forth in the emerging political debate that we can see. So we'll be back in just a moment to continue with that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were having a very spirited discussion just before the break about 
ideology and interest serving and so forth. It's certainly true to say that the parties themselves are um, are aware or at least like to talk about ideology and the government has, I mean, it's not exactly using lifters and leaners, which it used to such disastrous effect a few years ago under Joe Hockey, but um, this new uh, this new binary has been presented, which is um, with the government saying that voters will be faced with a choice whenever the next election is, presumably in 2022, uh, that uh, they'll be faced with a choice between spenders and enablers. Now, the spenders are obviously Labor, which wants to expand the role of government, sees government as the answer to everything, according to the coalition, and the coalition's view of itself, which is that it's all about doing what is necessary to enable the economy and to na- enable private capital to grow itself. Um, so that's right there, a, a pretty clear... Uh, presentation of differing ideologies, whether it turns out to have any relevance or not, I, I guess will, will will remain to be seen. But but it's true that Anthony Albanese is talking about a post COVID society, a post COVID economy, in which some significant changes are brought. That this is an opportunity to address. Uh, inconsistencies and unfairnesses in the economy uh, in terms of the distribution of wealth and opportunity uh, that we should take and that governments can do more, that governments can step up. So, um, Richard, what are, you, what are you seeing there? Are you thinking that uh, this is just more marketing from Scott Morrison or do you think it will become a material divide in the minds of voters? Oh, I'd never say just more marketing. I mean, marketing is central to a, the post-materialist economy we just started to talk about before. Um, I, I just, you know, the economist in me can't let this go. This government, no matter what they call themselves, love spending tens of billions of dollars on private schools. They love spending tens of billions of dollars on private hospitals and private insurance. They love spending money on things they love spending money on. And I just don't think it's economically or diplomatically uh, or, or democratically helpful to kind of agree that they're the party of small government and small spending. They absolutely love to spend money on things they love. $10 billion for an inland railway line, publicly built. $7 billion for a second Sydney airport, publicly built. $50 billion for their national broadband network. This is the small government party. This is the party that doesn't like to spend money. Spare me. So, uh, but, you know, let's leave reality aside and talk about Australian politics as usual. Uh, There's no doubt these same big spenders will go to the next election saying we're the only ones you can trust with your checkbook. We're the only ones that can uh, get us out of this mess. Um, You know, public debt doubled between Tony Abbott getting elected and the coronavirus. It doubled. You know, you got elected saying we're going to be, you know, we've got a debt and deficit emergency and I'm the only one that can rein it in. He doubles the public debt before coronavirus comes along and, you know, his party will obviously go to the next election saying we're the only ones that can reduce debt. Donald Trump, you know, has racked up more debt than any president in modern history. Again, it's okay. He's on the conservative side of politics. So you're right. The next election will be framed up as if it's some titanic fight between those that like to borrow and those that don't. Uh, But actually, you know, conservatives are just better, so much better 
uh, at, at concealing their big spending preferences because they know the things that they like spending money on aren't that popular. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely the next election will revolve around uh, the rhetorical debate about should we be big spenders or should we cut spending. Uh, but it'd be far more honest if we admitted that both sides of politics want to spend a lot of money. Uh, they actually just disagree on who needs it the most. But that's very classist of me to say that. That's well, very, uh, uh, without wanting uh, to be... Very unfashionable. <laughs> without wanting to be too much of a smartass, it sounds like marketing, as I was saying. Uh, well, but, it, but it's not just marketing because, unfortunately, marketing is what modern democratic debate is yeah but if the, but <laughs> if know, the coalition is 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 going about this uh, massive spending program racking up public debt building all of this infrastructure using the public balance sheet to do so um but selling the idea somehow that it's the party of small government and free enterprise yep. and the minimal state oh, that's pretty good marketing oh, genius Oh, absolutely. That's a credit where credit's due. You know, I mean, they've got away with it, you know, for, for, well, they've been in government for seven years now and they're still blaming Labor for the debt that they've doubled. It's it's absolutely genius. And but, Scott Morrison's uh, still I, I, sort of selling the idea, um, not, not explicitly, but he's done so quite well, I think, selling the idea that it's a first-term government almost, you know, that oh, don't worry absolutely. about what happened under that, that other lot, uh, that other lot being... Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull and all the the, the, the trouble that they caused. Uh, he, he, you know, it's a new day sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, no, I, I you know, as an economist, I just kind of despair because I, I wish we could have an economic debate about of all the things to spend tens of billions of dollars on, which ones would be the most helpful? Of all the things to spend tens of billions of dollars on, which ones do people want the most? Like, wouldn't that be wonderful to live in one of the richest countries in the world at the richest point in world history? Even in a time of crisis like this, our material standard of living is so much better than nearly every human that's ever lived. Imagine if we said to the people, and in order to boost employment in the coming years, we're going to spend tens and tens of billions of dollars on new stuff. What stuff do you want the most? Imagine the democratic debate we could have about priorities, uh, about short-term versus long-term, about, you know, do we help particular regions? Do we help women? Who do we help catch up? Like, think about the enormous amounts of money that our our government on our behalf is about to spend. But no, no, not in Australia. We're not allowed to have an interesting conversation about <laughs> uh, – no, we're not. Like we're not allowed to have a conversation about what to spend it on. You know, Dad tells us that there's only one thing that we can spend it on and that's infrastructure, and if we don't spend it on that, we'll all get in lots of trouble. I mean, it's just embarrassing, but that's got nothing to do with economics. That's that 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 that, that sort of uh, father knows best uh, stuff uh, really was evident today, also on the front page of the paper, where we see the revelation that they're going to have to spend billions of more dollars on the Collins class submarines to keep them operational until the mid nineteen thirties, when the new uh, submarines come on. On, on stream or go underwater or whatever it is that they are supposed to do very well. Uh, and uh, that, that's $80 billion. Now, I mean, it strikes me as amazing that we spend such eye-watering sums of money in respect of potential and theoretical threats when there, we knew, for example, uh, there were plenty of uh, papers, there were plenty of predictions about the prospect of pandemics 
you know, over over recent years, it's been well known that uh, there would be, you know, the idea of global pathogens was a genuine risk factor. And yet when one happens, it turns out we don't have anywhere near enough personal protective equipment. We don't have enough ventilators. Uh, we haven't sort of got the capacity in a number of our um, uh, areas of our primary health service to uh, to deal with it, our hospitals. Uh, we've done very well in Australia, let's be clear, but we've been very lucky that a number of these vulnerabilities in our system, we're just uh, we we managed to get past it through a through a you know a bit of gaffer tape policy and a whole lot of luck. Oh, indeed, but I, I'd say it's far worse than that. I mean, how many how many countless times have we heard uh, people say that climate change is a is a wicked problem? Oh, it's a wicked problem. Think about that. We're blaming the problem, not ourselves or our leaders. It's a wicked mm. problem. Because it has these dimensions to it, it's it's a it's a problem that uh, that that won't actually arise straight away. It's not a urgent in the way that many crises are. Uh, it's uh, it's it's uncertain exactly when it will show up and what it will do. So it's in the future. It's uncertain. And it's a collective action problem. You know, no one country can fix it. Oh, it's a wicked, wicked problem, <laughs> that climate change. Well, let's compare that to defence. We've just spent, as you said, $80 billion on the capital cost of the subs. The all-in uh, operational cost for the subs over their lifetime is $200 billion. So to build them is $80 billion. To maintain them and crew them is a $200 billion commitment. Well, let's run it through the wicked problem filter. Um, uh, if we build the subs, are we certain that they'll deliver peace and security to Australia? No. Are we sure who we'll deploy them against? No. Are we sure when we'll deploy them? No. Are we sure that when we deploy them, someone won't have an undersea drone or a countermeasure that completely negates them? No. And will Australia acting alone to build submarines create some sort of world peace? No. So whenever you hear someone droning on about climate change being a wicked problem, just ask them why we're so good at solving defence problems. <laughs> you forgot one, though. There was, are we sure that building them would secure a number of government seats in, uh, in vital electorates <laughs> like in South Australia? In Adelaide, exactly. But let's be, so this is my point, right? There's no ideology at play here. There's no fundamental problem with democracy at play here. It's just interests. It's just interests, and we can't look away from that fact. When we want to, because we're so rich, because we are one of the richest countries that have ever lived, we live in a country with the 13th largest economy in the world. Our GDP is about the size of Russia's. We can afford to do anything we want, including hose 200 billion up against the wall on some subs, and no one even notices when they blow out. And then we tell ourselves, Dad tells us, oh, but we can't afford to spend money on renewable energy. Or, oh, we can't afford to spend money on childcare. Got to watch our pennies. I mean, this works in Australia. It's just embarrassing. Well, it works everywhere for, for a very good reason. Defence is literally what the state effectively was and has always been. If you're going to have any kind of chieftain, like what does he do? He builds a wall and 
gives people spears. Um, and there is obviously all this sort of bureaucratic infrastructure um, around security and defence to sort of ensure the continuity. And ideology. Sure. And, and yes, but I, I also think that um, only anarchists are probably not interested in funding defence. Um, so, but I think what is kind of interesting if we sort of look back at this sort of dichotomy that you presented to us um, at the beginning is that, you know, we, we've got a government that doesn't quite know exactly what it's planning to do because it doesn't f- understand the full scale of the problem that it faces and there are several unknown factors that it doesn't really know how to, to, to calculate yet. And, so p- and part of that is to do with how the rest of the world reacts um, economically. Uh, and so, but it is also sort of like relying on its sort of tried and tested formulas, right, in framing the spending it does as good and enabling and, um, you know, minimalist or at least like the appropriate amount and then sort of trying to frame whatever labour suggests as profligate, wasteful, unnecessary, etc. And the reason for that is it's it's not just that these are the sort of you know the 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 standard lines that both parties will kind of um, trot out because the coalition owns the issue of the economy uh, and uh, asylum seekers in particular and labor owns the issues of health and education um, it's it's not just that it's it's that we have been discussing how Australia should look in the 21st century for a decade now, ever since the GFC. Um, And there is growing dissatisfaction with the way society is uh, necessarily structured currently. Uh, And that means, as Richard has sort of of outlined, taking on lots of interests, interests which are currently enjoying uh, closer proximity to power and are just simply entrenched in our system because they have been there longer um, and have been, you know, closer to government for um, longer. But it sort of goes back to the point that I've been making for a long time now. Like the, the, the government, you know, has been in power, this this Liberal Party has been in power for most of the 21st um, century and has been in power for more years than, than Labor since 1996. Like the, the Australia that we have today is largely their consensus. And so, of course, they're seeking to defend their consensus. And, and so we, we therefore shouldn't necessarily be surprised that they are not interested in a grand new vision of a changed society in the way that Anthony Albanese is. There's a, there's a reason why they emphasise um, basically the measures that we're already kind of familiar with to sort of restore us back to where we were before COVID-19 because they're not necessarily interested in changing too much about where the, where the consensus was uh, going forward into the future because it's, it's their consensus. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. Um, it strikes me also that um, when we think about things like con- economy, uh, particularly the degree of uh, rigour, Fiscal rigor in the budget, you know, balancing the budget as a as an end in itself all the time. We think about defence as we've just been talking about. We think even about immigration. It strikes me that the conservative side has been very successful in owning these kinds of issues, and not just owning the issue, but owning the index of success how we measure success in those issues. And that has left Labor in a position where if it talks about spending, it does so at the risk of its own reputation on 
fiscal rectitude. If it talks about, if it questions, for example, the $80 billion on submarines, the $200 billion commitment, as Richard rightly pointed out, on submarines, that opens it up to the suggestion that it is somehow soft on defence, that it's not as interested in national security, the most basic uh, object, as you were saying, Maria, of the state. Um, similarly, if it equivocates on immigration in some way, particularly on the treatment of refugees, that in some it, that that also plays into that sort of security uh, framework as well. So, the, the debates themselves are, are framed to the advantage of the conservative side, and and people on the left have not been particularly successful in taking those issues on, at least not electorally successful in doing so. What we see Anthony Albanese talking about now is a step in that direction, and it's going to be very interesting to see how much substance there is in that as Labor uh, progressively outlines its program and the extent to which that plays positively or negatively with the electorate. Yeah, I mean, so... There is a real advantage to being um, conservative in the sense that, I mean, we'll always have conservative parties because, if you know, conservatism isn't actually an ideology. It's it's a philosophy, uh, you know, essentially pre- preserve, preserve the good, incremental change on into the future. And what's kind of important to understand about the, the coalition, which I think is actually often overlooked, and it goes directly to, to Rich's point about interests rather than, than ideology, which is that, the, you know, the coalition is actually a conglomeration of several different tendencies on the right side of politics, right, and some of which are quite contradictory, like they're, you know, which is why you sort of see – uh, people who want to basically nationalise coal-powered fire stations um, in order to uh, prop them up and continue them forever with people who actually would be much more happy with a carbon price because that is an efficient market mechanism to deal with an external um, you know, coming threat that business and the insurance industry and all of those kinds of, um, you know, bastions of, uh, I guess, the city uh, want to want to sort of have better down so they can go on and continue to make um, money. And, you know, in Australia, because of the way what it is that the federal government is responsible for versus what the states are responsible for. Yeah, the, the, the coalition does have a natural advantage compared to at the state level where you see that Labor is far more electorally successful over the, over the century because I think voters actually do kind of understand uh, that these two different governments, or these two different levels of government do different things and they, they tend to put Labor in power at the state level because they trust them to deliver those services and they tend to put the coalition in power at the federal level because they tend to trust them more on the economy. It doesn't really matter if it's accurate or not. It's what people believe. Richard, I wonder if we could, we're just getting toward the end here, but I'd really be interested to get your impression as, as an economist on, um, on, on the labour market and where things could be heading. The Treasury Secretary told a parliamentary inquiry recently that uh, the government had revised down or Treasury had revised down its expectation of the severity of the joblessness crisis caused by this COVID pandemic and and, and its aftermath. They're talking about kind of numbers in the mid-8% now, 8.2%, maybe a bit more. uh, but there's a lot of hidden unemployed, of course. We know that uh, many people would have fallen out of the job market uh, in as this pandemic took hold. The school closures, for example, forced a lot of women out of the workforce that aren't actually seeking 
jobs at the moment um, because the situation, well, initially they weren't seeking it because they had to do homeschooling or care and uh, they may not be seeking work now because there's no real prospect of there being any work. What do you think the, uh, the, the real state of the the worst state of the jobs market will be before this is uh, on the upswing. Ah, oh, well, look. I mean, it, it, we we haven't seen we haven't seen the bottom yet, and it'll be a long time before we see the top. the The biggest problem is that about the only thing that hasn't changed in the Australian labour market since the nineteen sixties is the way we define it and the way we measure it. Um, now, there's no conspiracy at play here, but the the definition of unemployment is is terribly poorly understood, but it's very important right now. So for, for someone to be defined as unemployed, and it's slightly more complicated than this, but the key variables are they have to be, uh, they have to have worked for less than one hour, right? So if you work for one hour, by definition, you are employed. And if you are employed, you can't be unemployed. So the, the, the key definition for unemployment is you had to have worked for less than one hour, you have to be actively seeking work, and you have to be ready to start straight away. Now, back in the 1960s, most jobs, uh, most jobs were full-time jobs, and part-time and casual work accounted for a very small percentage of the labour market. So these days we we have unemployment, people working less than an hour who are actively seeking work and ready to start, but we have way over a million people who are underemployed, so working but don't have as many hours as they want. We also have a lot of hidden unemployment, and they are two groups of people that really matter. One, people that have dropped, have stopped looking. They're no longer actively seeking work because they know that there aren't any jobs out there. But there's another kind of hidden unemployment that's very gendered and matters a lot, and that is the people who who are working for less than an hour, who would take a job if one was offered, who are looking or actively seeking, but they're not ready to start straight away. And the official definition of unemployment requires you to be ready to start straight away. But if you're caring for a young kid or you're caring for an elderly parent, and the ABS says, are you ready to start straight away? And you say to yourself, mm, no, I'd have to line up care first. So no, I couldn't start straight away. Well, you're not unemployed. So the state of our labour market is far, far worse than the headline unemployment rate. And uh, unfortunately, no, we know that women are overrepresented in casual work. They're therefore overrepresented in the underemployed and we know that those with caring responsibilities are, are overrepresented in the hidden unemployment. So, yeah, the, the headline rate, frankly, whether it's eight and a half or ten, doesn't really matter. What we need to know is how many million Australians need more work. And we know there's more than 40 million Americans that have been uh, tipped onto the uh, jobless queues uh, by this. I mean, there's staggering sorts of numbers. Just going back to your point about the uh, ready-to-work test, What's the logic of keeping that? Is, is is that just so that records are consistent through history, like not changing the you know the rules in cricket, so that you can make comparisons? Or is there any actual logic in that kind of uh, um, measure now? Uh, th- there is a logic, and part of the logic is to have consistent data. Um, I- I'm not for changing any of the definitions of un- of the unemployment rate. I just think it's time we stopped talking about the unemployment rate. Like, of course, we should keep measuring it. 
All right, it's an important, useful number. And, and, and for that trivial percentage of the population that understands the ins and outs of it, we very much don't want anyone going and changing the definition, I assure you. But to put that up as the kind of key performance indicator for the Australian labour market, you know, here we are in 2020, you know, 60 years uh, after, sorry, 40 years after, oh no, 60 years, God, I'm getting old. Uh, I said you were good with numbers. We, well i got it right the first time and then i checked myself um uh you know 60 years after we cooked up these definitions to say that they're cast in stone and that's what we should uh that's what the main thing that we should obsess about just doesn't make any sense at all so there's a big difference between saying should we throw the unemployment rate out because it's useless no we shouldn't it's not useless it's very valuable i'm glad we collect it the way we do but as a society if we're going to rely so heavily on casual work, if we're going to rely so heavily on the gig economy, if we're going to rely so heavily on women doing so much of the care in our labour market, then we need to develop and and highlight and use new indicators of the labour market. Uh, And let's be clear, the ABS actually publishes much more interesting data than the unemployment rate, uh, but the political class and the media are, are a bit stuck uh, on 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 using the unemployment rate as it is. The ABS knows all of the problems that I just explained. This is not a problem of the ABS. This is a this is a cultural problem, not a statistical one. No, I th- I think that's I mean I think that's an important point to sort of have about I guess like when we use uh, measures in the in the media or in public discussions, you know what is it that we're actually measuring, right? What is it that we're actually talking about? And I, I think there has been a gradual, I guess, de-skilling of the Australian population over the very long boom uh, post, the, you know, the you know, basically post the 91 recession um, around being able to discuss economics um, in a sophisticated way. And we see that reflected in uh, how we talk about uh, economic problems, as was just as Richard Dennis has just sort of highlighted there, um, but it also kind of limits the way our politicians can talk to us about articulating the, the the problems that are coming down the line. Like for example, I don't think we talk nearly enough about opportunity cost uh, as a concept, um, which would be particularly relevant to the huge amount of money we're about to spend propping up the economy or stimulating the economy, or for things like um, climate change. You know, everything is always framed as this big cost, but we're not actually ever discussing the um, what we're actually foregoing by not not switching into something else. Yes. Now, look, I might finish by asking you both uh, what you think um, might change about the economy uh, or what has changed within the economy, I suppose, as a result of this crisis. Um, Richard, uh, we were discussing the other day um, some of the differences in the way people will approach business travel as a result of um, of this COVID crisis and the changes that have been forced. Can you just talk to, to your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we, talk, we talk about the economy all the time, but we don't talk about economics very much and we, we don't have a very nuanced conversation about what the economy is and what drives it. And, you know, to the extent there's a headline story out there, people know there's supply and demand and price and all this sort of stuff. But actually culture 
drives an enormous proportion of our economic activity, far more than half. Uh, so, you know, why do men wear ties? Is it because ties are cheap or because people expect them to wear them? Uh, why do people drive expensive cars? You can't drive an expensive car because it's cheap. You drive an expensive car to let people know that you can afford an expensive car. So culture has an enormous impact on our economy. 30 years ago, no one paid five bucks for someone else to make them coffee. Um, now, you know, it employs half a million Australians making coffee for each other. So culture drives our economy. It just does. And we don't like to talk about it. Um, so the question is, how has uh, COVID-19 affected our culture and what kind of cultural change can we expect because of it? Because that cultural change will have an enormous impact on our economy. Uh, imagine, for example, that everyone who worked in, the, in an office uh, worked one day a week from home for Huron. I'm making up a number here, mm -hmm. but one day a week doesn't seem like a lot. That would mean that every morning in peak hour, there'd be 20% less cars on the road. Every afternoon, there'd be 20% less cars on the road. It would mean that commuters would spend 20% less on petrol. It would mean that people, uh, that car parks wouldn't fill up. It would mean that people would find a car park quickly. It would it mean that the profits of the people who own car parks would collapse. So something as simple as the cultural norm that you have to be in your office, at your desk, if you're uh, a particular kind of worker, if culture changes that, it will have a radical impact on our economy. Similarly, uh, if people realise that a Zoom call can replace a flight to Melbourne, that will have an enormous impact on, on Qantas uh, and Virgin, for example. So, yeah, culture drives economics. Culture drives economics. Once upon a time, there was a codpiece industry. It's not so popular these days. And in Speak 300 for years' time, people... <laughs> well, I, well, maybe it's a, a cottage industry. Uh, <laughs> cottaging. But, you know, in, cottaging. You said it, Mark. Um, <laughs> but in, in, in 300 years' time, people will laugh at our tie industry, okay? And they may or may not laugh at our coffee industry. We'll never know. But culture drives enormous amounts of economic activity in rich countries. It's a really interesting point, Maria. I mean, it used to be said that only Nixon could go to China, the idea that it had to come from that side of politics that that, uh, that uh, rapprochement could happen. Um, perhaps also we've seen a version of that with employers requiring employees to work from home through this COVID crisis. If it had been the other way around, it would have been resisted by employers. There would have been the sort of, as, as Richard says, the sort of cultural concern really on the part of employers that they weren't able to monitor their employees. There could be efficiency drops that this was a way of employees not, you know, getting out from underneath the, uh, the direct gaze of, of, of bosses and perhaps slacking off. But the change, the transformation was, was, needed and required by employers of their employees and we've seen the economy uh or many many operations continuing on particularly the industry we work in we're working i'm working from home right now so that's that's an interesting factor of it isn't it that the, uh, the employers were the ones that needed their people to uh, keep going but do it differently yeah yeah we we call this a a critical juncture basically or an exogenous shock a shock from from outside and, and no doubt it will um change uh several things about um how we work um but i guess what i would um 
once again, ending on a pessimistic note, um, I guess I would kind of caution listeners that, um, you know, a lot of the data from working from home has revealed that, you know, it's uh, that that cultural aspects of, of who does the caring and who does homeschooling and who might be actually not having their time protected at home is um, highly gendered. And so, it's 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 one thing to have these sort of changes, but if they're not sort of carefully kind of thought through and they're not necessarily extended in such a way that it will really change the patterns of how home and work interact, then perhaps what we will just sort of see is a, is a shift of certain burdens um, from from one area of life to another. And I guess you know, Richard is absolutely right that cultural factors are really important. They're very hard to measure, which is one of the reasons why they're often discounted. But that is actually like part of what we sort of expect governments to do. I mean, the reality is, is that families uh, and women do not have the financial resources to uh, pay for someone else to look after their children whilst they are working. You know, they might not even have the financial resources to put their ch- child into childcare so they can go and do the shopping or just have some relief um, from the, the exhausting work of raising children. And, you know, governments effectively set the incentive structure um, about how these things operate. And I guess that's sort of what we've been talking about for this entire hour, which is that it's not actually apparent that governments necessarily want to step in to sort of back in or facilitate some of the changes that we've all been talking about in a sort of more kind of concrete or or coherent way. It will probably end up coming down to individual employers and companies about how they choose to implement work from home um, or, you know, re- reduced uh, working in the office. And if it's not well thought through, then it may actually not necessarily serve the people that it's sort of most likely to benefit from it if it was well implemented. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. Uh, you know, you can imagine that the deductions for home office will be uh, up considerably uh, come the next uh, tax return time and and it may well be that employers are, are, are getting, um, you know, some of their on cost carried effectively by their employees. So we'll see how some of those issues play out. Maria, thanks so much for your perspicacity today, as always. My pleasure. And Richard Dennis, thank you for being with us on Democracy Sausage. It's been absolutely terrific to have you on from the closely named Australia Institute. <laughs> thank you. Anytime. And thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage. I'll be back uh, later in the week with Democracy Sausage Extra, and I'm hoping to put together a very stellar mini panel on this very interesting debate that has emerged about statues and place names and television and movies, uh, television programs and movies that are being withdrawn from streaming services and what all of this means. Uh, fascinating debate, uh, one the Prime Minister says he's not interested in having, um, even though he's made a few fairly controversial comments that uh, haven't really helped the debate in terms of its integrity. But we'll, uh, we'll have that uh, discussion for you later in the week. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>